Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Episode 34? 33. 33. I'll get it right one of these days. Uh, but I am Alex, once more joined by my buddy Julio here in this walk down the path of the contrary. I said that a few weeks ago and I like that, so I think I'm going to keep that going. Julio, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I, I didn't need to take pills for it. I just, <laughs> I'm pumped naturally, organically. Mm-hmm. So for this episode, we are here to review the 1967 uh, cult classic Valley of the Dolls, directed by Mark Robson. Interesting film that we watched this evening. Consider me part of the cult. <laughs> I am converted. Yeah, a movie that's at its time. Uh, it was based on, uh, of course, the book by the same title by Jacqueline Susan. And the movie was not so well received at its time, but it, it's gone on to garner, like I said, a cult following and also a genuine following. Even had a recent Criterion release, but... Uh, uh, like I said, it wasn't uh, necessarily beloved in its time. Uh, yeah, it's it's done pretty badly uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, not a whole lot of reviews because it's an old movie, mm-hmm. but enough to put it uh, in the rotten uh, category. I'm starting with uh, Dennis Schwartz from Ozus's World Movie Reviews, who says, you'll need some kind of a pill to sit through this soap opera dreck. Fed lots of uh, pills jokes throughout I, this episode. I can imagine. Uh, Grace Montgomery from Common Sense Media says, Dark, campy melodrama with focus on sex and drugs. How dare you? Dave Kerr from Chicago Reader says, Too dull even to function as camp. And finally, Roger Ebert. Oh, he hated it. From the Chicago Sun-Times. Yeah, he, he goes to town. He goes, It tries to raise itself to the level of sophisticated pornography, but fails. And it is dirty, not because it has lots of sex in it, but because it firmly believes that sex is dirty. He took it personally. Yeah, uh, I, I remember, well, we'll get into his relation to it there in the, the second act here. Um, but Valley of the Dolls is, you know, um, in many ways an homage or a predecessor, rather, to the Forrest Whitaker classic vantage point in that it's a bunch of different stories all kind of coming together. I mean, we have our main character here, Ann Wells, but the movie kind of starts with these four or five different roads that are all leading to the same place. Yeah, it's vantage points, but like the feminist version, Mm -hmm. which is a much better version. Exactly. Uh, So as I said, the main character, Ann Wells, played by Barbara Parkins, um, the movie starts with her in Lawrenceville, uh, a little town in New England, and she's going on to the city, and her family can't believe that she's moving away for a job in New York City. Yeah, as a male, I I found this whole movie illuminating. As because uh, you know, women women are a mystery; they're a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it's good when a movie just breaks it down and shows you step by step what their lives are like. Mm-hmm. And and there are times like in this movie when I I was just shocked to realize that hey, we're more alike than I thought. <laughs> Here's a, a, a young woman that 
just strikes out on her own, leaves mm. her hometown, and goes to the big city to try to make it big. And that's that's so many of us. Oh, yeah. It, but usually when you think of women, you're thinking of, you know, just... Especially in this time frame. Well, yeah, especially with women in the 60s. Mm. You know, that, it's just you don't think of, ah, somebody that's chasing their dreams or whatever. So it was, like, very... Uh, like I said, illuminating mm-hmm. to just suddenly see. And the movie starts with that. Yeah. And she gets to the big city and immediately becomes a secretary for a theatrical agency where they represent different um, members of the theater, movie industry, Broadway, things of that nature. Um, and one of them is Helen Larson, who is the vet that kind of won't step aside. She's a Broadway legend. Um, this kind of launches right into our secondary character, Neely O'Hara, played by Patty Duke. Um, who's the new kid on the block? And Ann Wells is sent over to have uh, Miss Larson, you know, give her signature on some papers. And it's right away we can see the drama that is in the show business. It's uh, that is to be. Yeah. Second thing that I learned about women is that they are they they're mean to each other. I mean, yes. that's not to say that men are not terrible to women. That's but that's more like common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Whereas. To see the veteran. women are much smarter about it. Exactly, so they're more vicious, mm-hmm. and and that's something that Anne learns also just quickly upon her arrival. She makes a mistake of complimenting uh, Patty Duke singing mm-hmm. to the old veteran, and then the veteran just gets her kicked out of the show because she immediately sees her as a threat. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that's going to happen over and over again during the movie, along with just what you would expect, which is men also screwing women over. Uh, Throughout the whole story. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, kind of rounding out the quartet of women here, that the, the focus of the film is, is Jennifer North, uh, played by Sharon Tate, who her whole character in this is a very gorgeous, just not talented woman who's just unfortunately being exploited for her looks. Yeah, she's just eye candy in different ways throughout the movie. Her character is tragic, but we'll kind of get into that as we devolve or evolve more into the film. Um Lion Burke, played by Paul Burke, which fitting, is an attorney at the agency that um, Anne is working at. And basically, he observes all this from afar. And while he's going in for the kill on Anne to, you know, lure her in, and, you know, he sees uh, an innocent girl from, you know, New England, and he wants to go in and move in on that. But he also sees the opportunity at dollar signs, and he helps Neely get a break from all this. Yeah, he is. He starts as a dog, and he has a very interesting journey throughout mm-hmm. the movie. But, but he is a dog at the beginning, yeah. and he's he's just pumping up the charm from the moment that he meets and and uh, she she falls for it. Mm-hmm. It's I, I liked it because it wasn't the cliche love at first sight. It was yeah. more like love at first conversation. Mm-hmm. They have a good three, four minutes of interaction before she decides that, oh, she's not quitted the agency because show business is horrible. Yeah. Instead, she's going to stick around and stay in show business because this guy's cute. Yeah. And that's, I, you know, it, it feels a little damning of her character, but that's because we're just starting the movie, guys. Yeah. She, she is going to go on a road that's going to put her above that kind of thinking by the end. So Neely becomes uh, a star out of all of this. So basically the process is Burke watches the process of uh, Helen Larson, uh, again, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but played by Susan Hayward, uh, kick her out of the show, but sees the talent that is to be there. So uh, the first thing that gets her her big break is he books her on a telethon where she basically just gets to sing. If you ever thought that telethons were 
not good for anybody but the people that receive the money. You're wrong. Here we learn that telethons is where stars are born. Exactly. Um, and it's also where she meets her first of many husbands, Mel Anderson, who I didn't catch his name, but he just she asks him to marry her like on their first date. They Oh yeah, that guy. I, yeah. I can never figure out what he was, what his role was, which I think is intentional. I think the movie He's just ambiguous. <laughs> he's just <laughs> professionally ambiguous. Exactly. He likes hanging out at the bars outside of telethons. Yeah. Uh he Telethons were all the rage back in the sixties. Right. You're like you're trying to get past a bouncer and, and just see <laughs> if you can you can get an autograph from those uh debutantes. Uh no, the 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 movie, and we'll see this throughout the movie, throughout the story, but mm-hmm. the movie has a lot of information that always keeps hidden that happens off camera, mm-hmm. and such as what the hell's up with this guy that ends yeah. up marrying, uh, uh, what's her name, Patty Duke? Neil O'Hara. Helen Keller. Helen Keller. Which, you know, she spent that movie not talking, not saying anything, mm-hmm. and then in this movie, she won't shut up. Yeah. That's her character. She's If she's not singing, she's bad-mouthing someone <laughs> This is, oh, this is definitely sassy. her uh, I Know Who Killed Me. You know, Lindsay Lohan breaking away <laughs> right, from right. the child roles. This was definitely Patty Duke making a, a claim here that... Yeah, spoiler alert, she gets the Oscar clip of I, the movie. I am woman, hear me roar. Um, so part of this big break also comes in the form of Burke uh, Lyon, as he is. That Burke is such a strong last name, yet they only refer to him by Lyon. But then again, Lyon is Lion. an incredible name. And, and I looked it up. It's Lyon with a Y. Oh, dude. <laughs> so can't be stopped. He's just hitting it's every like bad boy. There. Can't stop, won't stop. He helps Neely get a gig uh, following a famous club singer at the time named uh, Tony uh, Polar, who's played by Tony Scotty with an I. So could not be more Italian. <laughs> yes, and he, as I mentioned several times throughout the movie, he is the Eric Roberts character here. It seems just like in Punisher we had an Eric Roberts character here. He's not a gangster, but he looks just like Eric Roberts. I guess Roberts that was a trope that ran up until about The Dark Knight, and we just haven't had it return yet. <laughs> yes. Is the Eric Roberts-esque <laughs> character. Well, it's like, how do you top Eric Roberts in The Dark Knight? You can't, so you just have to retire oh, that trope. Absolutely. Can't top any of that. Um the problem with Tony is that he's kind of controlled by his sister, who we think is crazy up front, Miriam. Uh, of course, we come to find out later in the film that she's not. She's just very protective, which I felt was an excellent side story here because it's just kind of something that you think, you know, we've been conditioned in a lot of films we see that, you know, hey, this red flag goes up over here, but it never pays off. It pays off. Oh, no, here. it pays off big time. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Miriam, by the way, played by the 60s Lauren Hawley. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, so they help Neely. Uh, Burke helps Neely follow Tony's club act. So he goes out and sings. She has an act that follows. And basically, this is just a way of getting the foot in the door in a much simpler time. Uh, yeah, she has to come up with a whole act because he gets her the job before she even has an act. And mm-hmm. he's like, you have to work hard. And that cues into our first amazing montage sequence. Absolutely. Which is just a mix of like Austin Powers and uh, that movie with uh, Uma McGregor and Renee Zellweger uh, that is supposed to be kind of a, a send-up of uh, 50s, 60s comedies. Where it's just all bright colors and lots of uh, multiple screens. Uh, Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor? Yeah. Uh, God, what's it called? Same guy that directed Ant Man last year did that movie. Uh, oh, wow, that's a. <laughs> I know he likes jumping across. That's channels. a pair if I've ever heard one. <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's, it's a sixties montage 
in exactly. every possibly good way. But it's showing how big of a hit she is, all the photo shoots, acting gigs, all the things that she gets, but also, most importantly, her newfound pill addiction. It's something you kind of have to pay close attention to because it just kind of comes and goes throughout the montage. But the opening credits warn you about it because it starts with uh, the opening credits are like some sort of cartoon and mm-hmm. you see three silhouettes and then the silhouettes become pills and then yeah. the pills pop open and spill and I, at first i'm like oh that's awesome symbolism and mm-hmm. then i realized oh no it's like extremely literal <laughs> because yeah. it's gonna be pills all over the movie <laughs> so at this point lion and Anne are a full-fledged couple they are going steady as would have been the terminology at the time um and they visit Anne's home back in lawrenceville um now i wasn't too sure really the reason behind this because they really didn't go to see Anne's family or anything like that yeah they went to see her mom's house but the mom died off screen which is goes mm-hmm. back to me like when i said that that uh very important stuff happens off screen they're at work and Anne gets a phone call and as she's leaving the room she's like oh yeah my mom's been sick i wonder mm-hmm. and then next time you you see her they're arriving they're driving into the town and she's and he's saying well, i'm sorry i couldn't be at your mom's funeral and they totally <laughs> killed the mom off screen and had the funeral off screen and i think it's important because if you highlighted every important event in these people's lives then you mm-hmm. would have a five hour long movie if not longer yeah so you have to pick and choose and it may sound harsh but Ultimately, the mom wasn't that relevant to the story mm-hmm. that they're trying to tell. This is about these three women and show business. And the mom, she might be a woman, but she was not in show business. So let's mm-hmm. get her out of the way. But this is where it becomes kind of an insight to Anne's character and psyche in that it looks like she, despite you know being the big city girl now, she still just kind of wants a simple life and marry a man, settle down, that type of thing. Yeah, she she she's having issues with, uh, with the kind of relationship they have. Mm-hmm. And like we mentioned, Lion... He's not a lion. He's a dog, and he's 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 wanting to have sex there, like right there. And she puts a stop to it, and she's she just while they're roasting chestnuts uh, yes. on an open fire. Yeah, classic move. Yeah, classic move. There's a lot of classic and classiness here too, mm-hmm. because uh, earlier, a few scenes later, when they have sex for the first time, it's all silhouettes and and what you would call classy side boob, yeah. classy side boob all throughout the movie too. That's signature I, there's a, yeah there's a lot of side boob in this film um but yeah lion is clearly just focused on his career even when um we get the one musical number with uh susan hayward when she plays the i'll plant my tree and like it's her debut he says you know i love her when she's on stage and he clearly is married to his job but again he he's a dog and just kind of on the hunt so to speak but and kind of lays it on the line here in terms of what she wants and wouldn't you know the next day she goes back to see, you know, Lion, what, what his response is, how he's doing, and he's checked out of the hotel and taken off. Not just that. He's taking off to England. Mm-hmm. He's, he took it really harshly that, that he couldn't have sex with her anymore. He, she called him an Uber, and and he, he she basically said that he couldn't sleep there. Mm-hmm. Not even you can't sleep with me, but you shouldn't sleep here at all. Yeah. And uh, so then he goes to the hotel, and then when she goes to visit him, he left her a letter where he he just says, "Hey, I get it. I'm gonna go to England now." <laughs> but again, <laughs> Write my book. Props to Anne for at least being strong enough to say, "Hey, this is what I want." And right, and the fuck rest him of the for movie, taking off. Exactly. It's not like what follows is her crumbling down, and now we have to see her trying to recover from this lost love. Yeah. No, she just moves on. She just keeps going. And you know, God doesn't close a door without opening a window because she gets back to New York City and they want her to be a model. 
the talent agency's founder wanted to model some cosmetic products, things of that nature. Um, and her boss is very against it. Well, and, yeah, her boss is, but he's also he looks like the Monopoly guy. Yes, yeah, he and he's just as old fashioned because mm-hmm. in his mind, we saw it when he first interviewed her for the job. He, oh man, I didn't mean to skip over that. Yeah, his uh, dialogue in that is incredible. That just sets you up for the tone of the rest of the movie as yeah. far as men go. Yeah, that this guy, he, he basically he almost hands her an apron and tells her to start washing the dishes. He tells her that you know there'll be nights you're here till midnight because I'll get so drunk and make a deal and I won't remember a word. You're not to have more than one drink so you can remember the deal. I made. She takes in a stride, just like she takes in a stride now when she gets offered a, a modeling job, which I She's, love it. I love New York. I mm-hmm. love the fact that your life just changes lanes so mm-hmm. quickly. So one day she's a secretary embrace it next one she's a model and she goes for it yeah and her boss all he can say at the end is just let me let me read the contract before you sign which of course segues into montage number two yes yeah, yeah which, which is... it's even better and more 60s than the first montage <laughs> yes. the fluorescent colors the still lighting it's it's just fantastic it's the artsier perfume commercial ever because that's mm-hmm. what she's doing she's modeling for a for a perfume and uh and it's just amazing. It, it looks like a Fellini short film or something. It's just uh, oh, it, dude, there, yeah. There's some epic slow motion shots of her like spritzing on the perfume and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know the the underwriting, maybe even the spine of this film is uh, Jennifer Sharon Tate. Um, we get these reoccurring scenes, and this is a particularly powerful one of her having to deal with her mother, and you know, basically, um, and Sharon Tate like. This, this is real talk right here. Absolutely gorgeous. But um, one of the very interesting topics this movie tackles is body image, not just body image in Hollywood, body image in general, and what, especially at that time, women were expected to look like. And we get these um, scenes of her where it's just solo acting. She's miming basically a conversation on the phone with her mother. Uh, and, you know, you can infer her mother saying you know she needs to be skinny needs to be pretty that type of thing in between boob exercises exactly she does boob exercises which i didn't even know i didn't know, yeah i was about to say i didn't know it was a real thing i'm telling you this is like an encyclopedia of women world <laughs> stuff for us man this learn. is the book right here but it's a it's a story that you know everyone can relate to about the disapproving parent that type of thing and i think jennifer's character is particularly sympathetic easily the most sympathetic in this film and I think uh, Tate pulls it off pretty convincingly. Yeah, she's the only character that really never – she's never selfish. She always stays uh, – uh, she's aware of not wanting to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. So, of course, like you said, it's a tragedy. Yeah, and it'll just continue to unravel the further we get into it. Um, during all this, you know, the problems with uh, Jennifer, that's something she kind of internalizes – Whereas Neely has become an absolute wreck in her stardom, but also her newfound jealousy of Anne. Yeah, that's this is a uh, just another of the big threats that the movie explores, which is how showbiz just destroys women. Mm-hmm. It just like takes them and transforms them, and then spits them out and demonizes them for behavior that other that men would mm-hmm. do. She actually has a line in the movie where she. She walks out of a of a of the set because she doesn't want to do a scene, mm-hmm. and uh, and then she gets in trouble for it. And her complaint is, if a guy had walked out of here, it would be because he he has uh, integrity. But a yeah. woman does it, and you know, suddenly she's a bitch. She's drunk. I'm drunk. I'm unstable. That type <laughs> right. of thing. Yeah. Um, of course, she is drunk and unstable. But yeah. But they don't know that. They're just yeah. seeing her on camera. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, it's really torn at the seams of their friendship, and it's 
uh, playing on their insecurities. And this is a point where we get Mel, who uh, Jennifer actually comes over to um, Neely's house, and Mel is just a shell of a man who, you know, he, he, he he's typing something, a typewriter, right? Yeah. That's the mystery of what Mel his, does. M- his <laughs> memoirs, perhaps. I'm not sure, but yeah. Mel is just an overall mystery, but you can tell he's broken because he really does care for her, but. Um, not even the gender thing played into it. What this really shows is just the evil of show business, how it can just take someone and transform them. It, it explains why all the guys, or 99% of the guys that we see in the movie, are just assholes because mm-hmm. the ones that aren't just get emasculated, like mm-hmm. Mel, and eventually just have to leave town. <laughs> and take his typewriter with him. <laughs> yes. He says it's the only thing he owns, so I have to take it with me. Uh, Mel did make mention, though, of uh, Neely spending a peculiar amount of time with ted casablancas who i guess his sexual proclivity was some something of debate but yeah ted casablancas we could do a whole podcast on ted casablancas because first off great name mm-hmm. secondly there was uh uh back in the good old days when the entertainment channel was just starting or mm-hmm. at least i don't know when i first started noticing it they had this roundup of where they would have gossip reporters just talk about whatever gossipy Stuff was going on, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the reporters was Ted Casablanca. Right on, and I was like, "That's an amazing name." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he is he's brought up here, and uh, the implication seems to be actually it's not an implication; it's a very direct way that yeah they use a lot of slurs to some pretty shocking dialogue. Yes, to just basically say that he likes men, mm-hmm. and uh, and I appreciated the slurs in the sense that. That's how some people talk sometimes. Yeah. So especially in the 60s, it adds to the authenticity. Uh, it definitely yeah, it definitely adds to the time period it was released in. Yeah. Also, it's worth mentioning by now, Jen is married to uh, to Eric Roberts, to the singer. Mm-hmm. She she married him in another big thing that happens off screen. Yeah. It's um, that's I completely forgot about that. But you're right, because it happens via telegram. Um, Tony Pilar and Jennifer get married. Um, now, Miriam, his sister, Miriam Pilar, does not want this to happen. Right. And her reasons for that are not really, at this point, clear. Another of the many mysteries that this movie slowly unravels, mm-hmm. she she just makes a mysterious phone call to a doctor mm-hmm. and just mentions something. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> she just says, well, we'll have to get a doctor in L.A. or whatever it is that they're moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, Mel takes off. Neely's... At this point, I, I mean, it had been a while since I'd seen this movie. I thought this was where she bottomed out, but, you know, it's going to get much, much worse for young Neely O'Hara, which, by the way, like I was saying, uh, Patty Duke was like 20 at the time this would have come out. And, you know, some of her scenes are very far reaching, but a very impressive performance nonetheless. Yes. And it also it must have resonated really deeply with her as mm-hmm. far as somebody that was young and that was getting into show business mm-hmm. uh well i mean i'm assuming i don't know how many movies she had before this one mm-hmm. but uh for her to play somebody that's basically could be her future self mm-hmm. and not even like far off future but pretty immediate if she didn't take care of herself and the shittiness of her demeanor and what show business has turned her into is uh, very evident in that uh tony is you know out of work from his club singing things of that nature and jennifer who is again, you know, one of the only real kind spirits in the film is, you know, asking her friend Neely, you know, can uh, can you get Tony some work on your film, things like that, and she just, you know, straight up ignores the question. Um, it leads to Neely and Ted Casablancas going to a film premiere together. Jennifer and Tony see them. They basically 
turn their backs and knees and elbows pumping just take off running away from yes, them. Yes, it's it's pretty awkward. Uh, Jennifer, bless her heart, tries to make an excuse for her, mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, you know, she's nearsighted, so she, she can't, can't see, see more she, than ten feet." She in front totally of her. saw you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is where some true intrigue kicks in as they begin walking away, and Tony's legs collapsing. Say, "Hey, the same thing happened on set the other day," and in a classic, you know hubris moment jennifer's like you should go to the doctor and he says i'm fine and takes another step and falls down again (laughs) and that's that's almost pretty much it for for tony in this movie uh proving once again that because he's not a bad guy so proving once again that if you're a nice guy you're done in show business (laughs) it's true and in this movie and yeah and they show that in the most ruthless way possible um as we cut to his bed and he's just out in it there's a doctor there who explains to Jennifer, um, you know, as Miriam has known this but hasn't shared any of this information, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. But he has Huntington's cornea, which uh, is a very rare degenerative disease that affects you mentally and physically. Um, it is hereditary, and it's at this time. Poor, poor Jennifer. We find out that she's pregnant with uh, Tony's baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the solution, it seems like the only solution they have is to put. Uh, uh, Tony in a sanitarium, mm-hmm. which instantly made me think of like Arkham Asylum. <laughs> it's not, it's not as bad, but the sanitarium comes up later again yeah. in the movie a, a few times, and every time it's just it comes up as this creepy option, mm-hmm. a, a something that that's not good. But that's where Tony ends. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting too, you know, something of the time frame, and they do a good job of displaying here as it does come back into play. But just the, you know. That's not really frowned upon anymore, but the utter stigma that was attached to doing something like that at the time period. I think it's, for the time period, this movie does definitely tackles a lot of very interesting topics, and that not being the least of them. So following Tony getting taken to the sanitarium, uh, bills are piling up, and Jennifer is introduced to a French film director who does art films. So at this point in time, basically, Jennifer's having to start selling her body for money. It's not... Pornography, it's, but it's, it's French art films, which is close enough. Yeah, exactly. Jennifer has the amazing line of uh, a bare bottom with subtitles isn't exactly art. And I thought that was great. And the guy was like, "Oh, yo, beauty's in the eye of the beholder." Yes, I, I was trying to do it with, with a French accent, but I can't. Yeah, I can good. barely handle my accent. So I can't. <laughs> uh, yeah, that guy. Uh, that's that's a very nice dig to France in general. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he is a. Uh, I think he was brought there by uh, by Lauren Holly by, uh, by Miriam, sister, by Miriam, because she seemed to be cool with the whole thing. And yeah. She was just kind of telling him that's the only way that you she can had pay an for un- an uncomfortable amount of Polaroids of Sharon Tate and her <laughs> negligee, which I thought was fascinating. But yep. Um, so back in L.A. and uh, Neely has officially bottomed out. She's pilled out, drunk as a skunk. Um, she comes home and finds that uh, Ted is cheating on her. and With a woman. With a woman in their pool. And he has that line of, you know, by this hour, she's all hopped up on pills and booze. She's asleep by now. And she comes out. She comes home and tries to, like, you know, seduce him. She Yeah, so they have a huge home, apparently. Because mm-hmm. she goes in. She goes to, I guess, what is the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Takes her, cl- well, most of her clothes off. Opens the door, he's not there. So then she assumes that he's not there. So she goes over to like the other side of the house, I guess, yeah. <laughs> to get to the bar. And it's only when she's there that she hears all the the noises coming from the pool. Mm-hmm. And then when she looks in, 
I wonder if she was expecting to find him with a dude, just like we were when yeah. we were watching the movie. But no, it's it's a girl. It's an interesting turn. Um, prior to this, and I wanted to go ahead and say basically what the conclusion was, because prior to this is a really fantastic scene with Anne and um, Neely, in which you know Anne's like, you know, I'm worried about you because she's looking for Lion at this point because that's that's her agent. She needs some assistance, and Anne basically tries to conf- uh, comfort her about this and Neely is saying what you said that you know everyone's just making this up I'm not that drunk I'm not I don't have these problems um, and she's basically trying to justify everything in her life and the monster she's become that's right I forgot that yeah Lion has come back from England mm-hmm. he wrote his book and mm-hmm. uh, several years have passed by now <laughs> yeah he wrote his book and then decided that he only had one book in him and uh and now he he wants to be uh in showbiz again, he wants mm-hmm. to be an agent again, which kind of underlines, puts a spotlight on how easy it is to be a guy. Yeah. You know, you just take a year off, write a book, apparently did well enough that he made some money, and then he's like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, uh, go back to what I used to do. And it's almost like he never left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then really to the surprise of no one watching, Anne does take him right back. Right, exactly. It's, it's Whereas, like, with Anne, she, she had a major change of career, mm-hmm. and, yeah, it looks like she did well. But it's not... I don't think that she could just go back to her old job as if yeah. nothing happened. It's... in in he definitely... Uh, Lion seems to be living a much easier life than, than she is. But what Neely does here is also kind of condemn Anne for all of that um, and basically defend her and you know her the way she acts and her lifestyle which i think is a very interesting position for the filmmakers to take with this in that you know we know this main character is becoming a monster but they still have pride in doing so and believe what they're doing they believe in their convictions yeah and and it's all about the sisterhood i mean she's trying to wake up Anne Mm -hmm. to to the cold reality of this guy's a dog nobody here really cares we have to stick together, and, and that's how we survive in show business. And unfortunately, during all this is when we find out that um, Jennifer had her baby aborted because she called and basically asked Neely where Another to go. big thing that just happens off screen, we just find out from other characters. Because, mm-hmm. again, guys, that baby is not important in the big scheme of things of yeah. what this movie's trying to deal with. But it does add to the just tragic character that is Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, if you think that her aborting the baby is the most tragic thing that was going to happen in the movie. Mm. And uh, no, there's more to come. That's why this happens off screen. Yeah. So after all this, after she catches Ted, after she kicks him out of the house, almost kills him, throws like a huge liquor bottle at him that just barely And that misses. was not, that was a real. That wasn't a gimmicked bottle. Right, exactly. Yeah. That just goes and she barely misses him. <laughs> so kudos to the Ted Casablanca actor for just skipping that right at the, at the nick of time. But she misses a call the next day. Uh, Lion has to come and wake her up in bed because she was on an all-night bender. She's pilled out, wakes up. At this point, you know, we see that she's kind of become what she hated at the beginning of the film and that she just scoffs at the idea of anyone being able to replace her in any role, anyone being as talented as her. So despite the fact that, you know, um, Susan Hayward was not a pill popper, the egotism is still there. And we'll see shortly. They truly pay this story off uh, in a wonderful way. But here, you know, Neely has become that egocentric monster. Yeah, she and here's where the sanitarium comes up again, because Lion just basically tells her, you need to detox. You need to go to the sanitarium. Mm -hmm. 
and she nods. He walks away, and then she books a flight out of there. Uh, and this leads us to uh, a very sad, awkward, uncomfortable sequence where mm-hmm. we just see her walking the streets, yeah, <laughs> drunk, uh, getting in trouble. Well, this is the part where she's trying to travel incognito, and she just goes into the local watering hole. Yes. and yeah, it ends up. It just shows that she's still, for all her her uh, showbiz experience, she's still very naive and there's things that she doesn't know. Like she's incognito, but then she goes and she puts, she plays one of her own songs. Yeah. In the, (laughs) so, so as if she wasn't drawing enough attention, she starts singing along. Of course Mm -hmm. she's drunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she almost gets into a fight at the bar with some dude. And that's for all of you who thought that Women didn't get harassed back in the 60s when they were at bars. No, this movie shows you that still happened there. Yeah, it, it was pretty we, terrible. Yeah, it's it's. she has to throw her drink in this guy's face. Uh, and after yet another all-night bender, she wakes up in um, a hotel room with some guy there that she doesn't know. And we don't really know what's happened at this point. We don't know what's happened. And he – because she asks him, who are you? And he just kind of gives her the look and pushes her away. And then he digs into – what I thought was his wallet, mm-hmm. and he grabs money, and then I thought, oh shit, he's gonna pay her like on top of everything. He's just yeah. gonna like throw some money at her, but no, then he just takes the money and leaves. Yeah. So this guy had sex with her, and they just stole her money. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. It, it that's what I don't know if that's worse, <laughs> but that's still pretty bad. Yeah, and then she basically is checked into a hospital at this point, and Lion and Anne show up to help her out and take her to a sanitarium, and the you know. The snake bite is deep in her veins at this point because she begins begging the nurse for a doll, as she says, one of her uh, pills. Um, but she's taken off, and basically in her mind, it's a loony bin. Yeah. She has her stint at the sanitarium. It's this amazing short film within the movie. Where oh, she it's just, wonderful. She just starts telling the story of the what it was like. The film is different. Like the the yeah. filters are different that are used. Yeah. We just basically jump ahead to... I don't know however many months she's been in the sanitarium, and now Lion and and Anne are there, basically to pick her up, I guess, to check her out. And she's telling the story of of her stint there, and mm-hmm. it's just crazy. It's, it keeps cutting back and forth, and it's like lost scenes from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It just <laughs> she's being restrained by these nurses, and she's cussing them out. And then at some point, they put her in this tub with a tarp on top of her, and. Mm-hmm. And then she manages to wiggle her toe out and then rip the tarp off. It's just crazy. It's And the montage is highlighted by her singing for, you know, all the patients at the sanitarium. And this is where we get the final appearance from Tony. Yes. You thought he was gone, but no, he had he had one last song in him. He did. And it was it's a fairly touching scene as well because he's clearly there's not too much going on upstairs. He's you know, kind of withering away in this wheelchair, but the song she sings, it, it comes back to him. And it he's awakens able, something in him. He's able to give that one last encore. Yes. Uh, and then how, like many other movie stars, entertainers in show business, he just, he fades away. Mm-hmm. He's wheeled away by, by the, by the nurse. And never and to be seen Never again. to be seen again. How many other entertainers suffer that fate? And we just, we never think about them because, the ones that we know, the ones we think about, are the ones that remain in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, bringing to an end the tragic tale of Jennifer uh, North is the fact that uh, she has breast cancer. She flies back home from France. Without um, no, any money. 
Yeah. Basically, she's sick of uh, somebody wants to buy her contract in America, right? Mm-hmm. It might be even Lions Agency because they seem to control the world. Yeah. So they want to buy her contract, and the French director, he doesn't want to sell. And because uh, if he sells, she gets half. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want to. And then she he ends up negotiating. She's so desperate to go back home and see Tony again that. Uh, she basically it's implied that she just walks away with nothing. Yeah. And she flies back and she meets up with Miriam and uh, she arranges for her to see a doctor and also to be able to see Tony. Which, that reunion, off screen, we never yeah. see it. And I think that that's where, you know, by now you the movie has established this very successful pattern. When something happens and it happens off screen, it's because something worse is about to happen on screen. <laughs> it's so, true. So she finds out that she has breast cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, after off-screen meeting with Tony. Yeah. She shares this with Anne, says, you know, Tony didn't even know who I was. Basically, I have to have breast surgery. She said, all I ever had is my body, and I won't have that now. Uh, she doesn't know how she's going to pay for the bills, you know, things like that. Um, after Anne leaves, um, Jennifer goes once more to contact her mother, and all her mother can do is bitch about the movies that she's been doing and, you know, things of that nature. And uh, Jennifer can't bring herself to tell her mother that she has cancer. There's also the logistics of the movie, like I mentioned before. You can't have a five-hour movie, so you have to remove some scenes. And, mm-hmm. and you may be thinking, well, Tony was an important character, and Jennifer's one of the main characters. Why wouldn't you see the, the reunion? Why wouldn't you see all these other things that we're missing? But that's because you need extra time to show uh, Jennifer's suicide, which is basically what happens now. And it happens in excruciating detail because yeah. she keeps getting flashbacks to – earlier moments in the movie happier times and also some sad ones mm-hmm. uh and then she just pops like a gazillion pills yeah and that's it and just fades into the night it's brutal like even by today's standards it's a pretty harsh scene so you know again um mark robson uh, for having the balls to you know do that at that point in time i think is yeah. pretty admirable and, and you're like where's the justice she was the good one she was the good one the only good one really so the surprise of no one Neely gets out and just is tempted back to the pills again and basically steals line away from Anne. To be fair, kind of, she warns her because when she's on, when they're picking her up from rehab, she's she just says something like, I'm ready to take everything. Oh, you know what I want? I want this guy that you have. Mm-hmm. And, and also, to her credit, Anne actually kind of takes her seriously because she has a reaction shot that I told you, that reaction shot is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this causes Anne to start, you know, popping pills and going down that dark road. Um, it leads to Neely, her thought to be comeback because everyone thinks she's clean, but she's really just, it's just all a facade. And um, we get our final showdown, so to speak, an actual physical showdown between her and Helen Larson. Helen shows back up into the film. They're at a banquet, I believe. Yeah, that's. I think they're celebrating her whatever new show she's she has the, that's the right veteran. and uh, and neely's not invited and she shows up right she's supposed to be kept under wraps until her comeback mm. her official comeback is, is announced or whatever and mm. instead she crashes the party much to lion's dismay yeah and then her and helen have it out basically in a, a powder room yes and they get into an actual physical altercation again women being cruel to women crueler than any of the men <laughs> have been in the movie <laughs> She they're scuffling and then uh uh the old lady's wig comes off. It turns out that her red hair was was right. was a wig. It's, yeah. it's gray and uh 
yeah, Neely takes it and, you know, they run around and then she locks herself in the stall and tries to flush the wig mm-hmm. down the toilet. And the poor woman is outside screaming, asking for it back. The wig won't flush, so then she just throws it back, throws it back out, and just uh, takes off running. And takes off running. And but then Helen Larson, you know, sees herself in the mirror with the gray hair because she asks the maid, she's like, "How do I get out?" And she's like, "Get out through the kitchen." And she looks at herself and she goes, "I'll go out the way I came." And this entire scene is just symbolism at its finest. Yeah, yeah, it, it just does everything it, without really saying it. She just. She just owns her new position in life. Well, it also shows who's the kid and then who's the seasoned vet who knows how to roll with the punches. Right. And that that's what she says later on. Yeah. That, that, that this girl's not gonna last because she just can't take it. Mm-hmm. She can't take it the way that she does that, you know, the old lady does. And her ability to cope with, you know, that fear, that emergency on the moment of her hair situation shows why she's been able to stay and Neely hasn't. Right. And she says there's like this business, it just you need to roll with the punches because there's lots of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, that's just basically what the movie's saying. If you're a woman, especially, that's what's going to happen. That's, yeah. and, and basically being a woman the, in show business asks of you to be stronger even than normal, than normal life. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. That's, so that's, that, that's too much for a lot of people. So Helen Larson is really the true like deity of this film, I'd, I'd like to think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and crushed, uh, you know... Overcomes her pill addiction um, and moves back to Lawrenceville. She's greeted there. It's her grandmother, I believe. It's her grandmother who's yeah. still alive, even though she doesn't have one line of dialogue nope, in the film. But yeah. it's all you have to. All she needs is the fact that she looks like her grandma, and, yeah. and you see her, and you're like, "Wow, this old lady's still alive." But Jennifer's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne's mom is dead. Yeah, and so many other lives are crushed. But this lady that stayed in the small town, she's still happy. Yeah, she Just, looks exactly like she did at the beginning of the movie, which is. Maybe like three, four years prior. <laughs> At least. Yeah. Um, so Neely's big comeback is not to be as she's just, you know, barking orders, um, just being a general, you know. Uh, Diva. Exactly. A, yeah. The gonna, worst sense of the word. Yeah. And Lion has just had enough. And before her first big uh, Broadway show back goes down, Lion just bails. Yeah. She, she tells him this amazing line, which is. You're just an agent. Yeah. And he looks like he's crushed. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> uh, but also what she was trying to do in a nice circular uh, moment is she's trying to get an actress fired. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, the old actress had her fired off her show at the beginning of the movie. She's she's seen an understudy or somebody that that's very talented and that's going to steal the show from her. Mm-hmm. So she wants her gone. So, but after Lion leaves and her anxiety and insecurities about the uh, understudy, she reaches back into her little uh, makeup box and finds her bottle of pills. And um, we this segues to the legend Richard Dreyfuss's on-screen debut in a motion picture. Um, he's a stagehand who comes to get her, and she's not answering the door, and she opens the door, and she's clearly intoxicated. He has maybe 30 seconds in the movie, but he, he does well. He knocks very forcefully on her door. He does. He says, Mrs. Mrs. O'Hara, Mrs. O'Hara. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she's a mess, and she's got her the director. Oh, she's got her, act, her dress for the second act on, and go get the understudy. And then in like the last big 
defiant moment that Neely has. She just grabs the understudy and tries to choke her, but she, there's just no force behind it. She's no, it's, dead behind the eyes. It's done. Showbiz has had her way with her, mm-hmm. its way with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, now all that's left for her is to, uh, to give us her Oscar clip. It's true because she goes out, um, goes drinking, gets drunk, and is just wandering the streets at this point. And it is the Oscar clip because there's nothing left. She has no one. She keeps reaching, grasping at straws. Literally, she's reaching out to the she, heavens. She and, even calls out God. Yeah, it's, she does. <laughs> and no one's he doesn't there answer. for her. And after she exhausts all her resources, she calls to herself and she's not there to help her. Nope. Pretty intense. Pretty intense. And the Oscar goes to <laughs> Patty Duke. <laughs> Uh, so we wrap up with Lion making the trek back to Lawrenceville. He's got a sweet fedora on as he goes <laughs> and speaks to Anne. And like you said, important things happen off camera. We just get at the very end of their conversation. We come in where she's telling him, no, I will not marry you. Yeah. Um, so Anne, despite everything that we've seen throughout the film, finally has learned, you know, no, this is the life I want. And she finally takes a stand for herself as an yeah. independent woman. Yeah. She She just knows that... It's maybe Lion might have changed his ways, but there's no way of knowing, and it's not worth it mm-hmm. to find out. It just, you know, she's lost basically two friends to showbiz, and and really, I mean, yeah, she got a boatload of money probably out of it, but how about happiness? Exactly. And so she realizes this is something I tried, but this isn't a life that I want. Yeah. And the movie ends with her literally braving the conditions. She goes out and is meeting the cold head on. Yeah, for some reason, Lion stays at the house that's not his. <laughs> and she just goes out into the snow. So, yeah, it differed greatly from the ending of the book, which is something we'll get into here shortly. But I felt that was a very good ending in terms of establishing her as that strong female character. Yeah, it, it takes her the whole movie, basically. Mm-hmm. Because... It's it's easy to criticize her for getting back with Lion and putting up with. I mean, he's not a horrible person, but he does kind of lead her around. Even he's incredibly, has many infidelities. Well, yeah, that too. But yeah. you know, that's you could say that. Oh, she didn't really know, and she was just being trusting. But the fact is, she does put her life on hold mm-hmm. and lets him provide yeah. after a while. I don't know how much money she made on her modeling mm-hmm. days, but. That's obviously done once they get back together and yeah. he's just an agent full time and all that. So uh so to see her be free and be her own woman, turn him down, mm-hmm. uh it's just uh it, it's promising. It just gives yeah. you a little bit of a happy ending after so many tragedies. Yeah. Uh it it's good. It shows that you can survive show business. Sometimes you just have to walk away. You just gotta get out. Yeah. You gotta Rick Moranis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that sometimes you have to realize it's not worth it, mm-hmm. and you just you just leave. Yeah, um, and yeah, so it ends with like a the sun will come up tomorrow type uh, vibe to it. Well, there is. I'm sure I don't remember exactly with the with the credits, but it probably is during the movie. Again, going back to movies, uh, women being a mystery. Mm-hmm. There are very helpful songs to help you. <laughs> know what's in their head because the songs are basically the lyrics are are what they're thinking yeah uh kind of like in a disney movie mm-hmm. but but you know they're not really singing and it sounds like real songs that they just put in like exactly at, at the right time and much like a disney movie they all get hooked on downers well yeah, yeah. The, the, all those deleted scenes of disney movies where the characters are popping pills that's uh, exactly uh yeah so that was valley of the dolls um definitely a lot to talk about in the second half 
No, showbiz sucks. And being a woman is hard. Yes. Very. It drives you to either get out completely or kill yourself. Yeah. My hat's off to all the women that made it in the business. You could, at some point in my notes, and I forgot to read it, but I was just, I was thinking either uh, Patty Duke or Anne, one of these two is going to come out to be the Beyonce of this movie, <laughs> which is the woman that puts up with all the shit but comes out triumphant. Mm -hmm. And I guess Patty Duke definitely is not it. So, no. and Anne kind of leaves showbiz. So even that, that just shows you, the 60s were not ready for Beyonce. <laughs> I am Beyonce <laughs> always. <laughs> the whole world loves me! Where are you? Real talk. Valley of the Dolls. I don't even remember. Did I just recommend this? And that's, Was there any type of theme we were going for with doing this? No, you just said, hey, I got the next episode. <laughs> I own Valley of the Dolls. Let's <laughs> I watch didn't even it. know that you owned it. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure what made you bring it up. and uh, But I guess that it was probably a movie that you liked. And uh, I guess right. I wasn't like entirely wrong. You own it. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Well, I told you I owned... All but one of Sharon Tate's movies. Right. That's the real yeah. reason you own it. Anyway, uh, Valley of the Dolls was released December 15th, 1967. A good, solid Christmas movie to take the family to. Yes. Um, that's... that's where you take your daughter when she's talking about her dreams of going to Hollywood. That was like, let me school you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like uh, my parents made me watch Traffic like right before I went to like, high school. <laughs> like, you want to smoke weed? Yeah, like... Um, so it was based on the Valley of the Dolls book, which is like an all-time bestseller, written by Jacqueline Susan, um, who hated the movie. And really, the the quote is she called it a piece of shit. Um, so <laughs> she wasn't the only one. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Let's go ahead and get into the reviews, and then we'll kind of go over some things from uh, there. Well, these reviews are positive. Bright red tomatoes, which I mean, there's not many of them, but here's a few. Don Wilmot from FilmCritic.com says a lurid sixty sensation. Uh, Stephen McMillan Moser from our very own Austin Chronicle says, rent it and howl. I don't know that the movie was aiming for these reactions, no. but obviously these guys are like, oh, it's so bad, it's good. Uh, Film 4 says, the choice of Mark Robson, a talented Hollywood journeyman director, for this piece of nonsense was inspired. And finally, Marianne Johansson from Flick Philosopher says, oh, it's a bad movie. 
but in a good way. So it definitely did its part in that it sparked a big national intrigue. Uh, with it, a, it got it got the conversation started about yeah. women in Hollywood. No, it was just and like I was saying, my dad would have been like ten at the time, and he told me that it was pretty like interesting. He says he remembers like his mom talking about it because it was a very I mean, imagine for that time frame, it's a pretty intense subject matter. Um, budget of five million, uh, estimated. Uh, worldwide box office of about an estimated fifty million, and with an additional twenty million in domestic rentals. So it made its money back. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, they released it again. This is pretty gross, but they re-released it in nineteen sixty-nine after Sharon Tate was murdered, and it apparently made a bunch of money at that point in time too. That is blood money. Yeah, and I hope that they all um, get herpes. <laughs> So, I can't do the thing of finding it <laughs> funny because the subject matter is so fucking dark. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like laughing a lot. I had a a handful of of mm-hmm. laugh out loud moments yeah. that were not intentional in the movie mm-hmm. because there are just some moments of just too the acting and the dialogue yeah. and the whole situation is the just, dude who like, plays Tony is terrible. <laughs> 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 Tony, Tony Scotty, I think his name was. Yeah, it. I think it kind of helps though that everybody, nobody here is like particularly good. I mean, there there, there are a few people, but but in general, you know, it's like this this blur of mediocrity in yeah. a way as far as the. So that when somebody's good, they really stand out, and you're like, "Holy cow, I'm going in for yeah. this person." And but when somebody's bad, you're just like, "Oh, he's like the others." Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's kind of a big mesh, uh, and and. It's not. It's a variable. Who's that of Hollywood? Oh well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, until you told me that she was Helen Keller, I, I didn't know that that was Helen Keller. And yeah, it's. Um, my mom will quote this movie from time to time. It's kind of interesting, but um, my <laughs> Did thing... she calls your dad. You're just an agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but my little piece of trivia that I didn't drop on you before we watched it. So Susan Hayward, Helen Larson, uh, the seasoned vet. Yes. Do you know who that was supposed to be? No. Judy Garland. Oh. And she actually, like, there's still, there's video, like, footage of her screen test, and she recorded that song, I'll Plant My Tree, and there's, like, audio of it. Um, But she got fired from the film for pills and booze. <laughs> They're like, that's not your character. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and she went on a tirade and all that shit. But, yes, it's a movie that has gained... Uh, cult following we'll get a bit more into everything we're just talking about there um just recently got a criterion release along with its um of no real relation sequel beyond the valley of the dolls it is famous uh barbara parkins uh, who played Anne at a screening of it in 1997 she it was like the first time she'd seen it in a long time and she told the audience i now get why you like it it's so bad (laughs) (laughs) uh but I'm with you. I don't know that I would put it in the category of like, oh, it's so bad, it's great. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's I don't find it particularly funny. It's not like, you know, Room or The Room, excuse me. Right. But it's easy to laugh. It's not Room with Brie Larson. It, it, no, that one, there's also not a lot of comedy in that one. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, The Room, I mean, that's it's easy to laugh at it because it's just, that's beyond how bad, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the acting here is, The Room is... Yeah. You know, subterranean when it comes to yeah, how, how exactly. far below that is. Uh, 
I was about to say nothing tragic happens in the room, but no, it does. <laughs> it exists. Yes. Well, no, and I, I mean, you've seen it, right? Or you've seen parts of it mm-hmm. where, like, the, the guy kills himself at yeah. the end. So uh, here, but here it feels more real. That's the yeah. thing. As, as bad as some of the stuff is, the escalation is believable. Oh, yeah, they get hooked up on pills. They they get with the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. The show business destroys him. All that stuff, it's believable. Yeah. So it's a little hard to like laugh at it because everybody's taking it so seriously there, but not over-the-top seriousness, except for uh, instances like uh, Patty Duke's big Oscar clip toward the end. Correct. Where, where she just goes all out screaming to the heavens. Definitely goes for it. Um, like I said, she would have been like 20 at that point in time, so... Who knows? And the director of this um, has, uh, Mark Robson, has a very expansive, journeyman is an excellent word to describe him because I was going over his filmography and uh, outside of Earthquake with Charlton Heston, there's not like too much that I've seen personally, but uh, a wide array of films made. Um, I did in my research of this, apparently he was just a fucking asshole to work with. He was really mean and sexist to the women and like... So it was perfect. Exactly. And apparently just like would shame Sharon Tate on uh, Sharon Tate on takes cuz like of how not good she was and stuff and man uh yeah, my whole infatuation and interest in Sharon Tate is uh, that aside um man, that's a shoot and a half her talking about like I'm not really that talented and uh Sharon Tate was uh, in many ways um a composite of people's ideas of what she was supposed to be. I think she'd always in movies like this, it's, it's not her fault that she's really not that good. It's just that she like everyone thought because of how beautiful she was and her connections and everything, she was supposed to be like this big thing. She would have been perfect in the role of like a bond girl or something like that. But in a serious dramatic role, she just doesn't have like the notes to connect with that. Right. And she's asked to play like some heavy stuff here. Uh, and, but I mean, so does a lot of uh, the cast. Mm-hmm. They they and, and that might be the thing that they're asked to like do more than they uh, they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also very because it's an old movie. Then there's some stuff that just feels a little hokey. Uh, you, you know the how scandalous they find the movies that she makes. Yeah. I understand it's the sixties, but right now you watch and you're like, that was oh, our boy. big laugh out loud moment when they showed her French film because yes. it's like. <laughs> She's just the camera is very specifically blocking, showing anything but the the tasteful side boob. And then when they like wrap up the the fin, that hits <laughs> yes. the screen, <laughs> tremendous. That's, that's just like a movie. That's yeah, the, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yet you know, they're her mom's freaking out. I guess I understand. You know, back then that would be a, a big deal. But yeah, but with all that said, and then we can move on from Sharon Tate. Um, she still she had a presence as like. Maybe not as impressive as an actress. I mean, she's not Meryl Streep or anything, but she would command the screen when she was on it. You paid attention to what she did. It wasn't just like a background character that you didn't really care about what was going on. Yeah, but that's the thing. The acting is not terrible, except maybe for Tony. Mm-hmm. It's just not great. A lot of the di- a lot of the writing is very wooden. right. The writing doesn't help it. It, it, it. There's a lot of like wooden stuff going on there, uh, and and then the story. Now that we're in real talk, it is not hashtag. CC, I, dude, I don't know what went into, what was the thought process behind leaving some of those crucial Huge scenes, moments. yeah, off screen. I'm like, I understand it's a book and you're adapting it and you have to keep some stuff out, but, but for, I think the biggest one is not to show Sharon Tate's reunion with 
with uh, Tony. Tony. Mm-hmm. That's a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's basically her goal in the second half of the movie after she abandons her her porno career. <laughs> the whole reason she comes back is to see Tony, mm-hmm. and you don't get to see it. That would have been a heartbreaking scene. Well, maybe because they're like, she can't pull that off, dude. That's yeah. It. Let's just stick with her finding out that she has breast cancer. <laughs> Uh, maybe they shot it and decided not to shoot, not show it. Yeah. I don't know. No, but but then why would you have her repeat that to another character? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it happens so much during this movie where characters just tell each other about important things that we didn't see, yeah. and that it probably would have been better if we had seen them. Uh, it's a shame. It's only got this cult status because for what it's trying to say, it would have been really cool if it was a really good movie because it really could have made a big impact at that point in time. You know what you're saying is it needs to be remade. Oh, God, no. It's time for Spike Lee to, to just dust off his remake gloves and uh, cast Josh Gatt somewhere in there. <laughs> I guess he could be he Tony. Could, he could be Lion. No, he can't. Come on. No, that I'm would be, be like I'm John Hamm. I'm, I'm being serious. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, um, uh, old boy, new old boy would be Lion because now that they're buddies, they're remake buddies. Llewellyn Moss? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he can be Lion. Josh Gatt would be Tony. And then... Margot Dude, Robbie would be Jennifer. Margot Robbie would be Jennifer. You have to find a role for uh, uh, Lindsay Lohan. Because yeah. that would just be... That's she could the be uh, Larson, Helen Larson. <laughs> you can fudge with the with the, yeah. the timelines a little bit. Yeah, But you know what I mean? Like, If this had been a good movie, it really could have done a lot for the time period it was released in. Instead of just being like a scandalous movie, it could have been like, oh shit, like... <laughs> there's a lot of shit are, going on what are we doing to our women <laughs> yeah um but yeah it it does do a good job of showing that women are much meaner to each other than yeah which is something that I, i'd heard before but it's it was funny to see it illustrated here yeah mm-hmm. uh, i mean it's not subtle at all no. <laughs> in the way that, that it makes its points but it was it's just it's funny yeah i'd heard uh well i've heard plenty of times i mean for all the things that it tries to do to kind of empower women there's also then like these extremely cliche moments where um and calls and she's trying to call lion and neely answers the phone it's like oh no he's in the shower yeah and, and she's submerged she's so happy yeah. yeah uh man going back to like ridiculous sex scenes it the the first time that they have sex that lion and and Anne have sex mm-hmm. and it just I think he holds her hand at this bar. He holds her hand, and then you cut to her taking her clothes off and wrapping herself in a towel. Mm-hmm. So you're like, oh, she's going to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> but no, then she goes into the bedroom, and then she takes the, the towel off, and it falls to the floor. It's and very then you classy. Go to silhouette. Very it's, elegant. It's very, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess movies back then. Yeah, but, man, I was about to say that's like 50 years ago. So Right, but cool I, would just rather, I would just rather them not show it. They, they, they show... They don't show so much stuff. Then just mm-hmm. skip over the sex scene rather than make a very distracting. Skip the sex scene and like show us like important shit that happens in the movie. <laughs> right, right. I mean, when they get back together, you don't see that either. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, the second time they get together, mm-hmm. that, that's that happens pretty much off screen, and you're just like, oh, I guess they're dating again now. So in the book, uh, she takes him back, marries him, has a kid, depressed because of all those infidelities, just keeps taking pills. I can get why they changed it. A lot of people were upset that they changed it to a downbeat ending, but again, it's a movie and it was also made 50 years ago, so you always want to leave the audience like happy. So Right. Uh Do you think it hurts the story? 
No, I mean, I bought it. It, it made sense. Um, it's. I think both endings work. Mm-hmm. Just the difference is just one is a downer mm-hmm. uh, because that means that she. I guess she kind of didn't learn anything. This yeah. one, at least, you can be like, "Oh, okay, I can, I can track her journey, and it ends on an upswing." I think either one works. I don't think that changing the ending would have made this a better movie, though. Mm-hmm. It, it just it would still be, you know, what it is. So Patty Duke, um, that was one of the biggest at the time. From what I've been able to research, one of the biggest complaints was her, in that no one. Because she was a child star and then Miracle Worker and all that shit. No one wanted to see her like that. Like, so that was like people didn't really take her seriously. Um, but you could tell by her performance and then from everything I read, she was like Jared Leto with Chapter 24. Like, this is it. This will be the defining thing <laughs> that defines my being. Um, and then she showed up and they told her, it doesn't matter. Your music's going to be dubbed anyway. We're not going to use your real voice. Oh, and so like, no. she was apparently crushed by that. She... Uh... Yeah, she's the Ethan Embry of this movie. She she goes for she it. She goes for it. She is the mark of uh, Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> yeah, I would call the movie ambitious, but it's not really the the book was ambitious. And then like the movie was, it seems like it had at some point good intentions, but then in the end, with how it was pulled off, it just seemed like at that time it was an attempt for a cash grab. And then the disgusting thing of re releasing it after Sharon Tate was murdered. Right, and you know. that's just. That is a cash grab. <laughs> yeah, that's classless. Yeah, uh, I, uh, dude. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I would be. I would just tell them what it's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this happens, and this happens, and this happens. <laughs> I just save you two hours. <laughs> maybe it resonates with you a little more if you're a woman that's in show business, or maybe yeah. it's the complete opposite. Maybe you just go like, okay, well, mm-hmm. you know what? It's actually much worse than this, and you're doing us a disservice for being so. Uh, over the top well the other big thing is the uh, book the timeline is a lot different so this movie like we said three to six years maybe is the timeline of it right uh, so the book begin like this beginning of the story is right at the end of World War II in 1945 and then it goes up to like the end of the 60s so a lot changes in that time period <laughs> yeah nothing changes in America in this during the movie, it just their lives change, but America is the it same. It starts in the winter and it ends in the winter. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's not one year because we know more time passed. Mm-hmm. The only person that ages considerably is uh, uh, Neely, mm-hmm. but only mainly hairdos. <laughs> it's I true. Mean, God, sixties hair was just fantastic. Now, the two montages are genuinely excellent in just like a very nostalgic retro sense. I guess if you are into that sort of stuff. I, I loved how you called it Austin Powers. It's like, no, Austin <laughs> Powers would be like this. <laughs> well, I'm trying to help our audience oh, picture okay. it quickly. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, Down know. with Love. That's the name of that movie with uh, Uma McGregor and Reza Warrior. It's pretty good. Who directed it? Uh, the guy that just did Ant-Man. Peyton Reed. That's his name. Terrence Malick? <laughs> <laughs> how much money would you pay to watch Terrence Malick's Oof. Ant-Man? It's like made with like Ant Man is actually like an ant. It's an ant. <laughs> Steve Buscemi and just a, the spandex outfit. Yeah. 
Still better than that, Batman vs Superman. <laughs> it would be, and that's my friend Reed's joke that I just stole. So, um, Terrence Malick making any superhero movie would be good. Interesting. I'm I'm trying to remember what my logic was for recommending this, but I just knew it was something that I owned. I didn't realize it was so low. I think that was it. It was 36 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Uh, the first time I ever saw it, I didn't really know anything of its uh, legacy, so to speak. Um, I was just really interested in watching Sharon Tate's films, so I watched this, and it's just it's a movie. It's a movie. I that- think I'll say this because I mean, in the end, like I said, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. But just going glancing over the reviews and Rotten Tomatoes, like the quotes and all that stuff, I'm like, ah, you might be being a little too harsh on it. Mm-hmm. It feels like unnecessary uh, snark when yeah. it comes to it. Maybe some of it coming from that re-release. Maybe there's a little vitriol just because they think that that's bullshit that they re-released it uh, around that time, and that'll be entirely justified. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it's not that bad of course 36 percent. we've we've watched worse than 36 percent. <laughs> yes christmas with the cranks <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean christmas with the cranks much worse movie than this one yeah easily this one you can sit through and i was just kind following of, the story it's just kind of a movie that i think at this point it's legacy as i do air quotes for our listeners uh, its legacy is bigger than the movie itself in terms of cult following, I guess, as you'd say. But I think that's actually that's very right because if you go in expecting this massive train wreck, you're going to be disappointed, which is kind of what I was expecting. I, I thought it was going to be one of those so bad that it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, oh, wow, maybe it would be one of those where like everybody hates it and I love it because mm-hmm. I was following the story. And then I was like, oh, no, it's just not good. It's just there. <laughs> it's, just, it's not good. And then, of course, Valley of the Dolls, written by Roger Deber, directed by Russ Meyer. Do you know anything about that one? Not oh, yeah, really. For our listeners, Julio went into this an absolute blank slate. He had no yes, idea. Yes, I didn't know anything. I just knew. I even had to ask you. Like, I texted you saying, so are we doing, is it the the one that Roger Ebert mm-hmm. did? And you said no. And, and I was no, like, I, did, I know nothing. Yeah. No, the Roger Ebert-Russ Meyer collaboration is, just read the Wikipedia summation. It's so fucking weird. It's perfect that roger debert who was not just of a generation but of all time like an, a defining voice of film critique wrote such a terrible stupid fucking movie uh, and it's the only movie that he ever wrote i know this yeah because i read it on somewhere it he he mentioned it in an article or something where he said that it was intentional mm-hmm. oh yeah it's definitely it's not like uh, Christmas with the cranks. It's, it's, <laughs> it's intentional that it's like as stupid as fucking can be. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm actually I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait until I see the the Roger Ebert Russ Meyer movie that's coming out with our hero Josh Gad Your playing hero. Roger Ebert, and uh, and then I might watch if I find that interesting. I might watch the movie itself, like Valley of the Dolls. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Thank you. Yeah, and that was, uh, I was telling you that when they announced the most recent crop of Criterions and Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls were on there, like, uh, I saw one article. It was some film thing I follow on Twitter. The headline was "What the fuck?" Beyond the Valley of Dolls gets Criterion, but there was like a large vocal amount of people that were "What the fuck?" This hurts the prestige of the Criterion Collection. Like I was telling you, the fucking Blob with Steve McQueen has a <laughs> release, so it's um, it's not like all of their movies are prestigious entries. So, so is that a thing? By the way, like what's that? You call like. Hollywood, the Valley of the Dolls, is that some, or is that something that they coin in this movie? Uh, or dolls is, is pills. I mean, I figured that much. Yeah, out I forget. I forget what the specific downer was. There was. It starts with a D, and I 
I'm not prepared, but there was a specific <laughs> pill that was like hot at that point in time that they called dolls. And so, yeah, it was. So, so you, but you would call like LA, I guess, the Valley of the Dolls or. Uh, I think there's like, it's a double entendre. There's multiple meetings to it. And right. Like but that. what I'm saying is like when Ebert writes Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, mm-hmm. it's like, he, it's also about show business. In it kind of, from my understanding, the they they wanted to do a sequel. The studio did to this called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I could be completely off, but it feels like this is what I read at one point in time. And then when this all happened, and then there was a lawsuit with uh, Susan, uh, the woman who wrote the book. And then they just kind of gave it to Russ Meyer and Roger Deber, who just made like this fucking <laughs> like do whatever you borderline want. sci-fi movie. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's definitely interesting. And on that note, uh, there was this documentary Jamie Kennedy put together a few years ago called Heckler. Did you ever see it? Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. There's a portion of it where they just like shit on Roger Ebert, and they just like uh, Kathy Griffin. I remember in particular, which that shouldn't lend any credence to credibility <laughs> at all, but. Um, is just talking about like what a piece of shit Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is, and it's one of the few movies I ever watched where I was like yelling at the TV. It's like <laughs> that's the fucking point. But you're missing the point. Yeah, that's a movie kind of like what you're saying about this. It starts very interesting, and then it just is like, oh, there's a total like agenda to this, and now it kind of sucks. So, but yeah, that was Valley of the Dolls. How how often do you rewatch this movie? I think this is the third time I've seen it. So it's not since, like since you own it, so mm-hmm. you'd seen it one time prior. It's right? definitely a movie that, like, if the Draft House did like a two dollars screening of, I would definitely go to see it in a movie theater sometime. But and they have like their own like menu. Yeah, they have, like the the candy pills. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say, I, I couldn't do a quote along with this, but that was apparently one of the things when they did like an anniversary screening of it. The people kind of like Rocky Horror style when. Neely did her thing at the end. They all screamed, <laughs> Neely O'Hara. <laughs> oh, dude, that's that's so bad. I guess some people like that, but I I just can't. God. <laughs> yeah. For There's a lot of scene. I don't know. It's a movie that it's a good YouTube movie because there's certain clips from that I could take and put and just show that. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's good. And then there's like these other scenes of acting that it's like, you know, you're kind of watching it with your hands over your eyes type thing. Are you, you're all right. Uh, the the scene where, uh, where Neely is in the sanitarium and she starts singing and then Tony joins her. Mm-hmm. That is even, I think independently of their performances, the way that it's conceived, <laughs> it just, it's bound to hit you mm-hmm. because I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really sad, but you've already been with this movie for like an hour and a half. So, yeah. And you don't hate the character of Tony, so to see him come back for a little bit just to join that song, it's just it's pretty cool. But yeah, too much of it is not good, and then it's just like when you add that into the fact that some of it's a beating, like we were saying, the entire Jennifer story arc is just a beating. Like it's just bad thing one after another, and you know the first thing that she's brought on camera is, and then she's completely objectified and sexualized. Yes. And then she ends up killing herself in the end. It's just, it's, uh, it's a bit much always fun to go back and do older movies. Cause we don't do them that often. So, yeah. And I, I've mentioned it before when we've done older movies where I have to recalibrate my expectations and kind of, which is something that I was having trouble here because again, I'm like, I might not enjoying it as much just because it's this like old style filmmaking mm-hmm. and old style acting. Yeah. So that was that's why I gave it a good I think half hour before I just decided no this is just bad, <laughs> but you know because the acting sometimes in old movies it can be a little theatrical a little over the top and I don't have your money. <laughs>
Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. It's just not good. Not terrible, but you know, I wouldn't tell anybody that they need to watch it. I guess that's what makes it more interesting than anything because it is just a dead middle of the road type of movie, but it has a cult following. Which usually cult following, like you said, it has to be something that's like almost offensively bad or just, right, like, stupid, right? Or something but like that. somehow this has inspired passion. Yeah, and and on both ends because. Yeah, <laughs> the people that 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 don't like it, like I said, they're pretty snarky about it. And I was like, I don't know, we're we watching the same movie. I just, I wouldn't have bothered to write a review of it. That's mm-hmm. at least not one that that would, where my highlighted quote would be just like, oh, it's so bad, it's funny. Yeah. Who eh? <laughs> the review? It is a movie. <laughs> uh, so on from one side of the coin to the other, another mis- movie about show business, getting into it young. Uh, for episode 34, I got it right that time, will be That Thing You Do, which I am so goddamn excited about. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That movie's a piece of shit and we're going <laughs> to yeah, trash it. That's going to be a difficult one. But we'll, Is that our first Tom Hanks movie? I believe so. I know it's our first Tom Everett Scott movie because those are precious. There's, they're few and far in between. <laughs> I, I know. I was going to say, that's the great white buffalo of Hollywood right there. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that'll it'll be difficult to find a narrative on how to trash that. But Liv Tyler makes her triumphant return along with Ethan Embry. God, so much goodness. <laughs> Giovanni Ribisi. Let's watch it right now. <laughs> Comedic actor Giovanni Ribisi. I was talking about that the other day with somebody about how like there was that pocket in time where everyone wanted to make him the comedy guy. Like they had him on Friends <laughs> as Phoebe's brother and this and shit. And then he made Boiler Room, which was just the game changer. <laughs> and uh, then, you know. A few years later, Avatar, the bad guy, one yeah. of the bad guys. I'll forgive him. Um, but no, very excited about that. And then a uh, fun little project for episode 35. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I think between 34 and 35, mm-hmm. so maybe we'll record at the same time we do 34. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be like a little anniversary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years. Two years of doing this shit. <laughs> We're just like, like time hasn't gone by just watched like, a lot of movies watch a lot of movies a good chunk of them and i think that'll be interesting to like do a chart or like figure out like how many we'd like we'd both already seen how many you hadn't seen and how many i hadn't seen mm-hmm. i think that's okay and how many more times you're willing to watch the family stone <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> zero i can tell you that right now uh but yeah i uh so we'll do the the bonus anniversary episode between 34 and 35. 35, at this point, I think that we can safely announce it mm-hmm. since it's confirmed. He has tickets. <laughs> he's, he's already planned to crash at my place. Mm-hmm. Uh, our friend Chaz Fisher from the uh, Drive Zero podcast is coming to Austin for the Austin Film Festival. And he actually has a night where he's going to uh, record with us. It, the best movie that we could plan to to do for that night is uh the final die hard die hard so far the final so far so uh, a good day to die hard is that right is that yeah which i've yeah. said many times i wasn't going to do unless like for a special occasion so and the, the special occasion happened so oh, I, it'll be so awesome i'm just gonna have to lead that because i i would have to I, it's so hard to say anything positive about that movie. Uh, don't worry. I think like a few beers in, you'd just be like, hi, I love this fucking movie. <laughs> it does have um, fucking Ramona Flowers in it, though, so it's got that going for you, it. You walked out of it, right? You didn't I did walk out all the of way it. to the yeah. end. Okay, well then, I'm not going to spoil it for you. <laughs> um, oh, God, it's Jai Courtney, right? <laughs> yes. Jesus. Hey, hey, his name is Captain Boomerang now. <laughs> 
poor man's Tom Hardy. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, he did. Uh, man, you could also call him like the man that called that killed the Terminator franchise. Not in my opinion. McG? But... <laughs> no, because McG didn't direct the last one, did he? No. Uh, yeah, Genesis, but you know he is. Uh... Oh God, what's the name of the the guy of uh, the guy from the first movie? The character from the first movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger. The good guy in the first movie. Kyle Reese? Kyle Reese. Okay, uh-huh. so Jay, Jay Corney is Kyle Reese. Wait, what? Terminator he, he plays Kyle Reese? Yes. Jesus. It's amazing. No. And I said, okay, this is this redeems um, another day to thy heart. And then he was in Suicide Squad. <laughs> and I was like, eh, why did they even cast him here? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Did just, Genesis, Genesis didn't do good at the box office, did it? Sadly, it didn't. I think, you know, I posted, no, I didn't post a review, but I posted a review of it a while ago on Letterboxd, and I guess, uh, here, like, look at all the connections. Stu Phillips, I think that's his name, Stu Phillips, I know his name is Stu, he is uh, Chaz's co-host on Draft Zero, Mm -hmm. and I guess he watched Genesis, and then he saw that I had written a review for Genesis, where I was like, hey, this wasn't good, this wasn't bad, It's, it's actually pretty good. So then he wrote a comment saying... Did you have your eyes open when you were watching it? <laughs> and I said, wide open. Here's my here's my ranking of the Terminator movies. And I ranked them. And then he's like, well, you should do a contrarian's episode on it because it's not that good. Uh, I remember, I think uh, my friend Chris, when he saw it, he just, he sent me a text that just said the new Terminator. And it was a picture of like a train on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Dude, I think that at the very least, we would probably agree on the fact that it's better than Salvation. That, I like yeah. Salvation, you hate Salvation, but I think that we both would say, oh yeah, Genesis is better. Salvation is trash. It's not, but it's not great. Of course, I really enjoy 3, and that gets me exactly. ostrich-sized from that a was, lot of Terminator discussions. That was actually, like, my response to Stu was, it would be an interesting thing to do the whole Terminator trilogy, because Alex and I differ on 3 and Salvation, and he hasn't watched Genesis. You don't like 3? I thought you liked 3. No! Okay. Of course not. I I think that... Three is the only one that's not a good movie. You're an idiot. <laughs> it's, it's it doesn't do anything new with the franchise, it, other than oh okay now the Terminator has boobs. N- they actually have a scene where they're just like oh the Terminator it, has boobs now and now dude, it's, it's gonna the, have bigger boobs. The ending is so fantastic. That's the only good thing in that movie. The ending. Okay, all right. But the, an ending that's not a good movie make. All right, Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, episode thirty-five. Chaz. Our first, our first crossover episode. It's gonna be We're, awesome. It's gonna be amazing. And mm-hmm. then, how do we follow up that amazingness? I just told you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're not recording will be like a follow up in a way to our next two episodes. So we're having, we did Valley of the Dolls. We're doing that thing you do, and that's our little showbiz prequel. Then we have Chaz's action packed A Good Day to Their Heart, and then we have four episodes that are all about showbiz. So tentatively, Their Heart's a bad movie. So we're following up with The Player, Robert Altman's The Player, which is also about showbiz mm-hmm. up in the 90s there. Follow up by the Entourage movie, Whew. which is low in the tomato meter. And then we move away from Hollywood. We go to Broadway. We're going to do Bullets Over Broadway, the Woody Allen movie with John Cusack up in the 90s. And we finish with a chorus line based on the Broadway musical, which is a Broadway musical about Broadway mm-hmm. with Michael Douglas as the director. Pretty low score. I haven't seen it in forever. Uh, got to 
stacked lineup ahead of us. Dude, that's just I, I just want to announce this so people can start watching them. Yeah. <laughs> and then episode forty, I guess we got a ways to figure out, but that'll have to oh, be. Oh no, no, no. We figured episode forty a long time ago. What was that? This is forty. Oh, Jesus Jones. <laughs> we finally hit Jada Patel. That may be the day I break our audio equipment from <laughs> screaming too loud. I hate that movie with you know how I am about the word hate, but I hate that movie with such a goddamn passion. So, looking forward, we'll to have it. to watch it in spurts. That I can we have handle. so much awesomeness ahead of us. It's, it's, it's quite great. a road, but yeah, very excited about our first crossover. Uh, very excited about our two year anniversary. You know, just gonna keep trekking along. Um, spread the word, share SoundCloud, <laughs> iTunes, Twitter, all that yes. good stuff. Do you have any plugs? I do not this week. All right. I have a plug, Alex, and it's okay. for this thing called democracy. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I went to the uh, – I was just telling you this past weekend I went to uh, the Woodlands. It's a Counting Crows, Rob Thomas mm-hmm. concert. Great shows, both of them. Uh, Adam Duras is this thing at the, the very end of a show where he goes uh, – and he had done it. I think the first show I saw him in Austin, it was around the time of some – Whatever election was going on in 2009. <laughs> First time you were here was probably Dolan Clinton. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back Cause, then Because Julio's like, old. That's the joke. I haven't been here that long. Though. Oh, okay. So, but anyway, back then he was like, hey, you guys should vote. And this time he was like doing the same thing. And he was like, I don't care who you vote for, but you should vote. Because that's the whole thing about being American. He, he we should care who you We vote get to vote. For. Right. But that's. But at least I understand he yeah, didn't want to like... Yeah alienate what i would hope is just a quarter of his audience <laughs> instead of a half i can't them. imagine too many hateful racist <laughs> and counting crows fans yeah but uh but anyway I, I i agree and i was like you know it's actually pretty exciting like the whole thing maybe it's just because i'm very recently you know become a citizen but like the idea that yeah you you don't just vote you vote for like a lot of shit i don't know if you've seen like the ballot i looked it up today like while i was uh doing other stuff and I pulled it up and it was like wow it's just like yeah you have the presidential vote and there's like 20 other things that you vote for <laughs> and so I know that there are people that are like oh you know I just what's the point mm-hmm. because of the way the college uh, the electorates you know electoral college electoral colleges and all that stuff it's like oh you if you vote in Texas it doesn't matter mm-hmm. you know but actually it does matter because you look and it's like even if it doesn't matter presidential wise there's like all this other shit that you're voting on where your vote is actually it counts for a lot more um uh, but also, just vote anyway. Like, fuck it. Why not? <laughs> like, back home, uh, you actually, yeah, the vote's not mandatory. Mm-hmm. Or the vote is mandatory, and you get fined if you don't vote. So you get a lot of people that have to either vote, even though they're not, they don't understand what they're voting for, just yeah. so they don't pay the fine. And you have people that just, you know, they're like, fuck it, I, I won't vote. I'll pay the fine. And it's just like, I think that that kind of taints the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but here is voluntary, so it feels like actually cooler to go out and vote because nobody's forcing you to do it. In this case, you could almost argue that they're forcing you to do it because it's like fuck it, you know. Yeah. If you don't vote, this may happen. This might happen. Uh, but anyway, Jesus. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that that's my plug. My plug is for democracy because it's awesome. You that should vote. Spoken like a real uh, import, truly. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I, <laughs> I can just see your speech. That's why every time I see that red, white, and blue fly, I'll think of that magical word, flag. <laughs> uh, yeah. America. 
So since we're separated from it now, my plug this week will be It Follows. Go watch It Follows because I watched it again since we recorded. And really? It is awesome. Yeah. Wow. Did you? So you feel you feel better about certain things? Uh, did you? You're right. By the way, it's her dad. It's her dad. It's her dad right? at the end. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. like that just added a whole other layer onto it. But yeah. And I, you're like 100 percent sure that they're being followed at the end. Uh, I mean, um, that's the point of the film. That you don't know? Yeah. yeah. Which, complete random sidebar, but me and Reed were just talking about last night. My friend Reed. Uh, the Strangers, we were talking about how great that yes. is until the ending of the movie. How it's great, but then they do that clearly tacked on ending where she has to get the, like, the last scream in. What happens at the end? Like, they pull the mask from her? Is that what happens? They take their masks off. They oh, kill they them. Oh, they take the mask off. They yeah. kill them. They leave them. And then, like, those boys show up at their house and they go in and, like go to check on her and she like wakes up and starts screaming it's awful but that said had an amazing trailer has one of my all-time favorite theatrical posters um of her like in the room and just the dude in the shadows behind him Excellent. which when that happens in the movie did it freak you out uh it freaked the fuck out of me the first time i saw the trailer but when i saw the movie it was like this type moment where I was just like that's awesome no there's plenty of shit in that movie that scares me but um, or scared me rather but it follows yeah um, just watched it with my sister and she said the exact same shit you did about at the end where, like they put the sheet on it and they shoot it in the head and stuff and she's like this is stupid like <laughs> I like your sister <laughs> alright so um, uh, democracy it follows I'll work on my plugs. Uh, <laughs> like I said, uh, the previous episode, fourfingerdiscount.com.au. Uh, Great Simpsons podcast to listen to. I'll continue to plug that. In the meantime, I do believe that's going to wrap it up for this episode of The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong, and we will catch you next time for that thing you do. Fessor of 1999 Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. In any cheating movie, the person getting cheated on is the hero. You're Ali Larder. I'm Beyonce. I am Beyonce always. <laughs>